shape of Christian ministry. When we're asked to take on some kind of leadership or service in church, what should we expect? What does normal, faithful, biblical ministry look like? Now, of course, there are many ways we could answer that question, but let's just think about one axis. Should we expect that everything will be smooth sailing? That God will just lead us from one success to the other? That he will make everything fall into place? Things will always turn out well. Should we expect that we can accomplish his work with minimal pain? That we would effortlessly bound from one victory to the next as the gospel goes striding forth through the world? Converting everyone in its way. Or, should we expect it to be difficult? Should we expect to work hard and get tired? Should we expect to get disappointed? To face hurdles and struggles? Should we expect to suffer? Is ministry meant to be easy? Or hard. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, describes his ministry. Look at some of the words that he uses about it. Verse 24. Suffering. Verse 29. Toil. Chapter 2, verse 1. Struggle. We might say, blood, sweat, and tears. And yet the beginning and the end of this passage is also marked by rejoicing. In 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. And in 2 verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order. So on the one hand, suffering, toil, and struggle. And on the other hand, Rejoicing. And yet these two things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're not even in tension with each other. Paul says in chapter 1 verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, a masochist is someone who gets a kick out of suffering pain. Right? A sadist is someone who gets a kick out of someone else suffering pain. I don't know if you've heard the joke about the saddest and the masochist who were stranded together on desert island. And the masochist says to the saddest, hurt me, hurt me, hurt me. The saddest says, no, no, no. <laughs> now, Paul is not a masochist. So why does he rejoice in his suffering? Well, in order to understand that, we need to understand the kind of suffering he's talking about here. Why the blood, sweat, and tears? He does talk about rejoicing in suffering in a general sense, elsewhere, in Romans 5 in particular, but that's a different issue. The suffering that Paul's talking about here is specifically suffering in ministry. And he's suffering for the sake of the Colossians as well as other Christians around the world. And so he says, in verse 24, and I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church. 
So Paul rejoices in the sufferings that he's going through because he knows it is for something worthwhile. He is suffering for the sake of God's people. He's suffering for the sake of the church. And somehow or other, his suffering for the church means that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a bit strange, isn't it? In what sense is Christ's suffering lacking? Is not his work on the cross a finished work? Was not his sacrifice complete? Did not he bear all our sins once and for all on the cross? Did he not rise from the dead to show that that sin had been completely dealt with? If so, how can Paul say that he suffers to make up for some deficiency in the suffering of Christ? How can you finish a finished work? Answer that question. Let's look further at why Paul is suffering for the church. What is it that he's doing that's so difficult? Well, that's going to be the main thing we see as we work through this passage, and as we see, be, as we go along, there'll be various side points that he makes. But different ones of us may be different ones, may be pertinent as different ones of us. But the main point we're going to look at to see why Paul suffered. The passage is a difficult one, uh, so we need to stop from time to time to consolidate what we've worked out. By the end of it, I think we'll see. Why Paul's suffering is filling up the suffering of Christ and how we can do it too. And as we do that, we'll see why suffering in ministry is so worthwhile. To start with, Paul describes himself as a minister. Now, the word really means servant of the church. It speaks from the end of verse 24 about the church, which, verse 25, of which I became a minister servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So God had given Paul a a stewardship. He given him a task, a responsibility. He was was made a trustee of something for which he was accountable. And what was that responsibility? Verse 25. The end of verse 25. To make the word of God fully known. Literally, to fulfill the word of God. So Paul was to serve the church by proclaiming to them the word of God. By making sure that the message of Jesus Christ, which we saw last week, he's the supreme Lord, greater than everyone, God made flesh, died for our sins, and rose again. He was to make sure that message went out. By preaching the gospel and the power of the Spirit, people would come to know the truth. And this truth he describes in verse 26 as the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Now, a mystery is a secret. Something that can't be known unless the person who knows the secret or the person whose secret it is tells it to you. For example, here's a mystery. You do not know what is in my hand. That is a mystery to you. But if I reveal it to you, then you'll know what it is. Do you want another mystery? It's a yellow pencil sharpener. What a great mystery. Now, there was a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to the saints. That is, the people who belong to Christ. And not only was that mystery revealed to us, it was also revealed how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, 
people who didn't used to belong to the people of God were to be beneficiaries of it as well. Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Okay, stop and consolidate what we've seen so far. Paul is entrusted with making the word of God known. This word of God was in this, this message was a mystery in previous generations, but now it's revealed. And it was going to have a wonderful, rich impact, not only on the Jews, but on the Gentiles as well. So what is this mystery? What is the secret? The end of verse 27. Which is Christ in you. Christ in you. But that's the revelation. Christ was in the Colossian Christians. Now remember, the word Christ means King or Messiah. Jesus came as the King of Israel. He was the King that God had promised to all His people, who would not only rule Israel, but all the nations as well. That is there in the Old Testament, clear as day. But that this King would live in His people, that's a whole new thing. Christ the King would not only rule the world, He would rule His people, Jew and Gentile, from within. Christ, the King, in you. Now, we know if we take this further, we would understand that Christ is in us by His Spirit. That is, Christ Himself has ascended into heaven, rules from there, but the Spirit who indwells us unites us with Christ. Because Christ is in the Spirit, the Spirit is in Christ, the Son is in the Father, the Father is in the Son. There's a mutual indwelling among the persons of the Trinity, which, which we don't understand. But if the Spirit dwells in us, then we can say that Christ dwells in us. He is our King. He is on the throne. And so there is the mystery. There is a secret. The King is in His people. One day, Jesus Christ will come again and his kingdom will be seen by all. But for now, the king rules in the hearts of his people. And because the king rules in us, we have what verse 27 calls the hope of glory. Now we saw a couple of weeks ago that in the Bible, hope means certainty. Something that you look forward to. That you know is going to happen. The king who rules us inwardly would be shown in all his glorious majesty at the end. And we know that we are heading for glory with him in the end because Christ is our king in us now. Christ first suffered and then entered glory. And the one who blazed that trail is in us by His Spirit to lead us on that same path. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so Paul's job was to tell people, Jew and Gentile, about Christ. And so verse 28 begins with a marvelous statement. Him we proclaim. Paul and his protege Timothy proclaimed Christ. They spoke, they wrote about how great He is. 
They spoke about what He has done for us. That message of the supremacy of Christ, which we saw last week, that is what they delivered. The content of their message is Christ. Friends, there are many potential messages a church could be proclaiming. There are many religious ideas around, even in Christian circles. There are many different emphases we could choose to center on. Some people proclaim health and wealth. Some people proclaim a denomination or movement. Some people proclaim their opinions on politics or all kinds of issues. Some people proclaim themselves or the personality of their pastors. But we are to proclaim Christ. Our gospel message is this. Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord of heaven and earth. He died for our sins in our place. He rose from the dead. He is the King of all and will be seen as King of all. And in the meantime, we must follow Him, allow Him to forgive us, and let Him rule us from within. Our gospel, like Paul's, is the gospel of Christ. Him we proclaim. And as we proclaim Him, Verse 28 says, We warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. Paul and Timothy were warning people of the coming judgment, and we are to do so as well. We are to warn people of the danger of God's punishment if they do not submit to Christ. We, we can't shrink from that. We warn. And like Paul and Timothy, we are to teach. Everyone, the gospel truth we proclaim. So they will come to know the greatness of Christ. So they will come to understand what he did for them on the cross. So they will trust in him and escape the judgment to come. And Paul and Timothy, they did it with all wisdom, and so should we. For like them, we know the mystery that was previously hidden, but now revealed. We know that wisdom is found in Christ and made plain to us in the Scriptures. We know the Gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. We know what the Bible says. And so, like Paul and Timothy, we can proclaim Christ with all wisdom. And the purpose of all this is that, at the end of verse 28, we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is what Paul and Timothy aimed for. They wanted to present everyone mature in Christ. They worked and warned, they did, and warned and taught to that end. Maturity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is not found away from Christ. It's not as if you become a Christian by believing in Christ and then as you grow as a Christian you need something more. As if Christ is okay to start with but then, then you move on to something else. No, 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 no. Paul proclaimed Christ. He warned people to submit to Christ. They keep on doing that. He taught people the gospel and all its implications so he could present everyone mature in Christ. Growing in Christian maturity is never growing away from Christ. Growing in Christian maturity is never growing into something else. 
Growing in Christian maturity means understanding more and more of the riches of what we have in Christ and applying it more and more in our lives so that we become more and more like Him. As Paul will say, when we get to chapter 2, verse 5, or 6 rather, Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Christian maturity is maturity in Christ. Now, Paul worked very hard to play his part to help Christians mature. That was the point of his ministry. In fact, he says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. See, he toiled, he struggled, he labored. That's what his ministry was like. It wasn't a walk in the park. It wasn't an effortless, victorious march. Paul slogged his guts out. Some people wear themselves out chasing fame and fortune. That is vain. It will not last. But Paul's lot to proclaim Christ and to present everyone mature in him. And as he did, he was aware that Christ was working in him. For he did not struggle on his own, it was 29 again, but with all his energy, Christ's energy, that he powerfully works within me. You know what Paul, God's power achieved back in chapter 1, verse 11? Endurance and patience with joy. The ability to go on and to keep on trusting in the midst of hardship and suffering with patience and joy. So let's stop and consolidate again. What have we seen so far? Paul was a servant entrusted to make the word of God known. This word of God, this message that was a mystery in previous generations, but now it's been revealed and was have this wonderful rich impact among both Jews and Gentiles. The mystery was all about Jesus Christ. And Paul's job was to proclaim Christ. So that those who are not in Christ would come to him and those who are in Christ would grow to maturity in him. That was Paul's task. And, and he suffered and he labored and he struggled to do that. And he rejoiced in his suffering because he knew he was sharing somehow or other in the sufferings of Christ. Now, Paul wanted people to know that he suffered. He wanted people to know that he worked hard. He wanted them to realize that it is not easy. That's why he wrote this. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why? Not so they can feel sorry for him, but so that they know that what they have been given is really worth struggling for. So that they would press on 
in their struggle as well. Here's how we read it in chapter 2, uh, uh, verses, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Right, very dense. Hard to get our brain around. Let's look at it carefully. Tease out what the Spirit's saying here. Right, first of all, Paul wants their hearts to be encouraged or comforted. He wants them to be internally motivated to press on. He knows that like him, they will suffer. They will toil. They will struggle. It won't be easy for them, just as it wasn't easy for him. Blood, sweat and tears will characterize their ministry as well. And so he wants them to know it's not easy for him either, so that their hearts would be encouraged. So they would not be distressed and dispirited when they face adversity in ministry. So they will not be upset when they end up working very hard. So they will not be surprised when they face setback and disappointment. He tells them about his struggles so their hearts may be encouraged. So they'll be motivated to keep on pressing on. Won't get the wrong idea. But just knowing that Paul struggled wouldn't be enough to encourage them. There's another precondition involved. Something else that is needed before Paul's sufferings would spur them on. And the precondition of that encouragement or internal motivation to press on is what our translation calls in, in, in verse 2, being knit together. Right? Um, the tense is probably better translated, having been knit together. It's logically behind uh, that encouragement. So logically, being knit together comes first, uh, uh, then their encouragement comes. Okay? Now, but the word translated, having been knit together, uh, could also be translated, having been instructed. Now, both translations are reasonable. Having been instructed is how it is used every time in the Greek Old Testament. Right? Though, it is, the other one is used figuratively uh, later on in Colossians. I think having been instructed actually makes more sense here. If that's right, the logical sequence looks something like this. Paul suffers and toils for them and for others to hear the gospel and mature in Christ. The Colossians are taught or instructed about this labor of love so their hearts will be encouraged. When they see Paul's loving suffering and labor, when they're taught or instructed about it, as Paul has done in the previous verses, they are motivated by love to suffer and labor for others. So the gospel will reach them. And they too will grow to maturity in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. But that's only half the story. Still another half. The instruction that makes them able to appreciate Paul's suffering and toil and to be motivated by them is not just about what we just spoke about. There's something else as well, which we don't see in our translation. The translation here is notoriously difficult, but I tell you what I think is the best way of translating it that I can see that I think makes sense of the passage, right? As you look at verse um, verse 2, halfway through verse 2, change the word to in the ESV to and in, and in, okay, which is what it actually is literally. 
So I think you should read. Having been knit together or instructed in love and in all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. We are instructed in all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. But to put it simply, the other thing they were instructed in that would make the suffering and toil of Paul an encouragement to them is the rich assurance that they really do understand God. That the message that Paul proclaims, that the message that they proclaim, is not only correct, but is also sufficient to know God. That they really do have insight into the mind of the Creator Himself. That they have been given the incredible privilege of knowing God's plans and purposes for the world. That they have been instructed in the riches of the full assurance of understanding the mystery of God. And what is that mystery? Oh, from the end of verse 2. Which is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what the Colossians were taught, and what they had needed to know, or they would be encouraged by all this, is that everything that we need to know about God is revealed in Christ. Don't need to go anywhere else. We may spend the rest of our lives mining those treasures. We will continue to grow in understanding and appreciating and appropriating those treasures. But we will not, we need not, and indeed we cannot go anywhere else to find them. They are all in Christ. And friends, if we are to press on in faithful gospel ministry, in spite of all hardship, we need to be convinced of that as well. But there were some people who were trying to rob the Colossians of this assurance. And so part of the reason that Paul was reminding of this is to defend them against people like that. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, the danger is someone will come along and say something to trick us. They will say, yes, Christ is so important, but, you know, there are real insights about God that you can get from, from this other religion as well. They will add to what you know in Christ. Or, there are ways and techniques of, of reaching God that we can learn from, from people of other faiths. God has scattered his revelation in different religions and systems, so we need to broaden our horizons to get a comprehensive view of him. You Christians are just like those blindfolded men who just hold on to the elephant's tail and think that's the elephant. Right? Learn from the Buddhists who are holding the elephant's legs. The Muslims are holding the elephant's trunk. The Hindus are holding the tusk. And like us pluralists, you get a big picture of everything. What does the Bible say? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you have Christ, then you have it all. And if you don't have Christ, then you don't have anything. Do not look outside of Christ for knowledge of God. Instead, grow in Him. 
we need to do, as the Holy Spirit goes on to say, verses 6 and 7, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, establishing the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That is what we are to do. That is what the Colossians were to do. Some people were trying to divert them from this, but they had not succeeded. And so in verse 5, Paul prays for them. He says, For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You see, they, they were disciplined. They were firm. Even though there were some people who were trying to lead them astray, they had not broken ranks. They were steadfast in trusting Christ. For they had the assurance that if they had Christ, they had it all. They were instructed of the great riches of being assured that they knew God's mystery in Christ. There wasn't any mystery or revelation of God outside of him. So they knew that Christ was worth contending for. That Christ was worth struggling for and suffering for. Christ was worth laboring for and toiling for. So they knew that Paul's suffering and turmoil and labor were not in vain. It was worth it. Because Christ is so great. And all the treasures are in him. So let's step back again and see the logic we've established so far. Paul was a servant entrusted to make Christ known. He suffered and labored to proclaim Christ to everyone. His goal was to present people mature in Christ. And he suffered, he told, he struggled in order to do that. And he rejoiced in that suffering because he knew that somehow or other he was sharing in the suffering of Christ. And having been instructed about this in love, and having been reminded of the assurance that they have it all in Christ, the Colossian Christians who read this letter would be encouraged as well. They too would press on in Christ to suffering, toil, labor so that others might hear of Christ and grow in Him. And by doing so, they would be joining with Paul in sharing the sufferings of Christ. Which brings us back to the question at the beginning. What does it mean for Paul to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. How does he finish the finished work? Well, let's think again about what we learned of why Paul was suffering. Why was he suffering? He was suffering to bring the gospel to the Gentiles who didn't know Jesus. He was suffering to build up Christians in Christ. That is why he toiled. That's why he worked so hard. That's why he suffered. Does that give us a clue about what he means when he says he's filling up the sufferings of Christ? Oh yes, it does. Think about it this way. Let's say someone decided to give you the gift of a new car. Right? Let's say it was Charles. Okay? Charles says, hey, I like you. I'm going to buy a new car for you. Right? So he goes to the dealer and he chooses a, a red one because the red ones go faster. And, and he pays for it out of his own money. Money that he's worked very hard to earn. He says to the car salesman, okay, I want you to deliver it to, you know, 
at your name on the end. So the car dealer takes the car and he gives it to you and he says, here are the keys. Uh, there's a gift from Charles. It's yours. Now who bought you the car? Charles did, didn't he? But you know, if Charles had simply paid for the car and walked away, you'd never have got it. The car would still be sitting in the dealer's showroom and after six months the dealer will sell it to someone else and be very happy if he sold it and he got double. Paying for the car is not sufficient. Someone else had to deliver the car to you. And unless someone did that, you would not be able to enjoy your new car. Friends, Jesus paid the price for our salvation. He finished the work of dying on the cross for all our sins. He took our blame, our punishment for us. He suffered for us. That was sufficient to take away all our sins. There's nothing lacking in that. It is a finished work. But, for us to enjoy the benefit of that salvation, more suffering is needed. Because someone has got to get that message to us. Somehow or other, the fact that Jesus died for us and rose again needs to be communicated to us. And it means someone, or in fact many people, are going to make significant sacrifices to make that happen. And they did. Not only that, we need to grow in Christ. We need to learn more and more about Him from the whole Bible. We need to understand Him better and love Him more. We need to be established, rooted, built up in Him. It takes time. That takes effort. We need people to help us and encourage us along the way. Paul suffered to do that for the Colossians. He was willing to sacrifice for the sake of their growth. And furthermore, even when people are in Christ and growing, there are people who will try and deceive us and, and make us lose our hold on Him. Who will lead us away from Christ to someone else or something else. And we need people to fight against that. Who will be willing to suffer to oppose those who will lead God's people astray. And Paul rejoiced to be one of those people. He was happy to suffer if it meant joining with Christ for the salvation of others. He was willing to toil and labor and struggle and sacrifice to make Christ known and to present people mature in Christ. And friends, the Christian life and ministry that Jesus called Paul to the Christian life and ministry he called the Colossians to, and the Christian life and ministry he calls us to, is not a bed of roses. Jesus suffered and then was glorified. And we are to follow that pattern. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to make sacrifices. Be prepared to work hard. Just as Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice so that people could be saved, we too will make sacrifices so that people can be saved. The Apostle Paul suffered in his body for the sake of Christ's body, the church. And we should be prepared to do the same. Blood, sweat and tears and rejoicing are normal in Christian ministry. Now I know there are many people here who work hard for Christ 
in all different kinds of contexts and all different kinds of ways. But serve tirelessly so the gospel can go out. I know people here who suffer significantly for the sake of others. If that is you, then rejoice. For like Paul, your suffering, your sacrifice, it is not an insignificant thing. You are suffering with Christ. You are suffering like Christ. You are a partner with Christ. You are a co-worker with Him. Suffering with Him for the sake of the salvation of others. And that is a special thing indeed. So next time you think, oh, is this really worthwhile? Remember that every treasure is found in Christ. The message of Christ simply must go out. Whatever part God gives you to play in that whole process, you are playing a role in it. Next time you are tempted to be discouraged when it's hard, remember that the apostles suffered and laboured too. That's the nature of Christian service. Don't be discouraged. It's normal. Next time you wonder if working for the gospel is worth the effort, then remember that you're suffering with Christ. Remember that you're toiling with Him. You are part of His great plan. You're a partner with Him, filling up what is lacking in His afflictions. Rejoice, my friend, that you have the privilege of sharing with Christ the job of saving the world. You are finishing his finished work. And nothing could be more significant than that.